Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. What should church members think and feel about the practice of church discipline? It's an unpopular topic, but Carl, Amy, and Todd don't shy away from asking some tough questions and giving some keen insight on the matter. Keep listening after the conversation to find out how to download a free MP3 from the Alliance. Okay, so this is a very sobering podcast for the three of us today. Um, We happen to be sitting outside of a puppet master's office. We're a little nervous. Um, We've gotten in a little bit of trouble here, and um, it's kind of like being sent to the principal's office. Todd once again said the word sexy on air, (laughs) and here we are not knowing what our punishment's going to be. But um, that's led to an interesting um, conversation that we thought would be a pretty good topic, and that is within the realms of church discipline, the importance of church discipline in the church, um, the lovingness of it, and but then the, the really difficult parts of when it actually comes to excommunication, and then also the, the wonderful beauty of restoration when, when the purpose of excommunication mm-hmm. is fulfilled. Yeah. So I'm talking here with two pastors who are under a little bit of trouble of their own while we're sitting here, but um, what do we have to say about this, guys? Yeah. Well, you know, Carl and I have been kicked out of all kinds of associations, so we, we do know the feeling. But uh, um, I, you know, it's interesting. If, if hopefully, if you're a Presbyterian, a confessional Presbyterian, or a Reformed Baptist, you actually do have a a category for understanding uh, church discipline. Um, there's a lot of other evangelicals though who who either don't really know what we're talking about when we say church discipline, or they might know a little bit about it, but they've never seen it practiced. So mm-hmm. maybe um, they've seen it practiced in an abusive sort could, of way. Could have seen it practiced in an abusive sort of way. I can tell you that I have lots and lots of Southern Baptist brothers and sisters who've never seen I, I'm not coloring all Southern Baptist churches, but I know I never saw it uh, growing up. So so we have lots of brothers and sisters out there who just don't have a category for it uh, experientially. They've never seen it done. And um, so first of all, how, how would we say, Carl, you know, in a brief way, here's what church discipline is? Well, first of all, we'd have to get over the negative connotations of the word right. discipline. I think in a, in a sort of post-Freudian world, if you like, discipline has connotations of Suppression, oppression, mm-hmm. repression. It's seen really in a negative light. Right. And that's very deeply ingrained in, in the wider culture, in educational theory, in, in philosophy, in the way people live their lives. Discipline mm-hmm. is seen as a negative thing. When we're talking about church discipline, we're talking about that which is a vital part of keeping the church healthy. And it has a, a number of functions. And it's important, I think, to, to understand the functions of discipline and hold them in, in our minds as we approach the topic in order that we don't don't go astray. First and foremost, I think church discipline is about vindicating the name of Christ in public because the church is the representative of the Lord Jesus Christ to the wider world. And obviously there are certain things the church stands for that the wider world is not going to like. We're going to take stands on certain things that, that don't go well with the wider world. There's nothing we can do about that. But there are also aspects of church life that are can be problematic. If the church tolerates certain kind of behavior which does not reflect the character of God, then onlookers from the wider world will look at the church and and see 
Well, that's what God's like. Right. So the first thing about church discipline is it's to do with vindicating the name of Christ in public. We don't tolerate certain things because they are not becoming to the people of God in their public testimony to the world around. Secondly, as pastors and as elders, we have a responsibility to protect the flock. And if there are people in our church who by, uh, by word or by example are doing things that damages the flock, jeopardizes the flock, troubles the peace and unity of the church, leads people astray through false teaching or false example, we as elders and ministers, we're responsible to stop that. The New Testament makes it very clear that the elders exist in order to put down heretical beliefs and heterodox behavior uh, within within the church. And thirdly, discipline exists for the reclaiming of the offender, that the hope is that when somebody is going astray, the the sanctioning of them within the church will bring home to them the seriousness of the sin in which they are engaged and bring about a healthy gospel evangelical repentance in their lives. Mm-hmm. Now, I list those things in, those, in that order because I think that, that that's an order of priority. The first priority is the vindication of the name right. of Christ. The last priority is the reclaiming of the offender. And it's important to get them in that order because if we place the reclaiming of the offender first, Mm -hmm. we are likely to allow our thinking on this to be more pragmatic. Mm -hmm. Oh, if we can just be nice and kind to this person, if we can give them, if we just give them a little bit more rope, surely they won't hang themselves. Mm -hmm. That kind of approach. So it's very important that we we have first and foremost in our minds the vindication of Christ. Secondly, the protection of the innocent. And thirdly, we might say the needs of the offender. Right. Themselves, mm-hmm. that will curb our pragmatism, drive us back to the Word of God, and I think give us an appropriate approach, a compassionate approach, but a firm approach to the issue of church discipline. Mm-hmm. And to put this in historical context as well, it, it, as far as the, his, the, the history of Protestantism, church discipline was never seen as a minor um, issue. It's always been considered one of the essential marks of the church. Going back to the fact where. I mean, Carl, at one point, didn't Calvin just have uh, two or three marks of the church and one of them was discipline? Uh, no, he or, didn't, actually. Oh. Calvin doesn't list discipline in the Institute he doesn't. of the Marks. Which, no. And well, that is, makes him unusual in the history of Protestants. Well, there, are a couple, there may be a couple of reasons for that. Uh, not all Protestants listed discipline as a mark of the church. Uh, uh, the, the issue with Calvin, I think, is if you make true discipline the mark of the true church, then uh, one, you may be seen to be a little bit Anabaptistic in the context in which he's working. Secondly, because Calvin was never able to achieve true discipline mm-hmm. in Geneva, you'd have been kind of defining your own church out of existence. Right. So <laughs> Calvin makes word and sacrament the, the, the right. two fundamental marks of the church. But discipline is still vitally important to Calvin. Right. It's not a, 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 an absolute mark of the church for Calvin, but there can be no healthy, well-functioning right. church without discipline. Yeah. So I'd introduce just that small yep. qualification. Yep. That. Here's a question for you. Um, I've seen when I was talking earlier about abusive situations where the pastor is the only person in, in the whole control of the church in, in that mm-hmm. form, the only government in right. the whole church. He has no elders. He's just, no he's just elders. He so that's, sits atop a that's pyramid, what I wanted yeah. to ask yeah. you is um, how important is the role of elders in general, in ch- proper church yeah. government, for, to you, exercise church discipline? Yeah, that's an excellent question because it could be that some people have a very negative view of church discipline precisely because they've seen it done abusively. Like one controlling pastor. Exactly. And, and I would say a church is ill-equipped 
mm-hmm. to perform discipline that is not led by a plurality of elders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, I think the general question of how important are elders, period. Yeah. Um, hugely important. Yeah. Right. I, I simply couldn't do what I do without no. the, uh, the six great men that I, yep. that I serve with. Uh, I, I think as well, you know, the Baptists are going to hate me for saying this, <laughs> but I think the issue you've raised points towards the advantage of a Presbyterian polity mm-hmm. because in Presbyterianism, the pastor's never or should never be alone. He can always look to his presbytery for support. In in my presbytery, if there's a if there is a dearth of elders in a church, we can second an elder yeah. from another church mm-hmm. to help form a session right. that, with that pastor. So, again, to me, it's another of the the very strong arguments in favour of Presbyterianism because that kind of you know. The pastor in that situation could be a despot, which is a bad thing, mm-hmm. or he could be entirely at the mercy of his congregation, right. which is mm-hmm. which is also a bad thing. Yeah, right. And in Presbyterianism, if it's working well, and, right. it, and of course it doesn't always work well, mm-hmm. it's staffed by sinful men. Mm-hmm. But if it works well, that situation would not arise. Right. Yeah, if, if things are operated according to the Book of Church order, mm-hmm. then it's been enormously comforting to me as a pastor having to move through a discipline process to have this very clear, very ordered process in place right. for how we exercise church discipline and to know that we've, as a church, our session is accountable to a presbytery right. to make sure that we're doing this properly. That's what I was going to ask, and, and this is, I, I believe, a difference with the Catholic Church as well, is let's say the person being disciplined thinks you got it wrong. Right. What can they do? They can appeal. Yeah. I mean, in a Presbyterian situation, you'd, you'd, first of all, the, the Book of Church Order would lay out very clear instructions for the trial. Mm-hmm. The, the charges would have to be filed in a certain manner at a certain time. The trial process is very clearly laid out. I mean, there's no trial process in detail laid out in Scripture, but the, the Book of Church Order would attempt to honor, for example, uh, Matthew 18. Right. The, the biblical principles, decency and in order, Matthew 18 would be honored in the precise process. The process is there to make sure the trial is fair so that the person accused has the possibility of defending themselves, yeah. citing witnesses, yeah. bringing counter evidence. Mm-hmm. If the verdict goes against them, then they have the right of appeal in the OPC within 10 days to the presbytery. And if, the, if they don't appeal to the, if they appeal to the presbytery and the presbytery doesn't agree with them, mm-hmm. they can appeal to the General Assembly. They have 10 days after the verdict to appeal to the General Assembly. Appeals, of course, are not new trials. Appeals are reviews of the paperwork to make sure that the church followed the proper procedure. So it's not that you get a new trial at the Mm -hmm. presbytery, it's that the presbytery reviews the process to make sure the process has been properly followed. But if you're in a congregational church and the session, the elder board come down on you, you're done. Yeah. There is no. And, and, is no and this is the beauty of the Presbyterian system is that it takes seriously the, the doctrine of sin. Mm-hmm. So it allows for the possibility, hopefully a rare possibility, but a real possibility that a session got it wrong. Mm-hmm. It acknowledges the fact that um, they're also that, accountable. Exactly. Exactly. So it, it, that's incredibly comforting as a as a pastor. And I can tell having been a part of a discipline process it's been very comforting to the congregation as well mm-hmm. who have been thankful um, for the protection and watchfulness that the session has exercised mm-hmm. the oversight that the session well, let's has get exercised. a little more personal here yeah when when it's come to the the point to where you have to excommunicate mm-hmm. a member 
um, man, how hard is that as a pastor yeah. to do? And then um, how much of how much of this information? I mean, obviously, it's mm-hmm. it's not good information. Mm-hmm. How right. much do you share and in informing the church sure. what's going on? Yeah. yeah. I think there are a couple of comments there. I mean, first of all, the, the discipline process, I don't think one should jump straight to formal discipline as soon as somebody crosses right. a line. Right, right. That uh, even a pretty serious line, I think okay. that, that formal discipline should be the last resort. Right. If, mm-hmm. if persuasion, meeting with people, speaking to them, placing them under the, you know, if they're sitting under the ordinary means of grace, seeing if, if, if repentance is being worked in their hearts. So one should... You never lose by going the extra mile. There's a long process. Yeah, before you move to formal discipline. And once you move to formal discipline, I think that there is a there is an aspect of the process that, and I speak very personally here relative to a discipline case, went through at my own church fairly recently that, that ended in the excommunication of the, the person concerned. You have to guard your own heart because once you move to judicial process, things can get very adversarial. And we're all sinful human beings, and there comes a point, you know, where you can be very tempted to be, I'm in it to win it. Mm. I'm not in it to see the Lord's will done. And, and you to want to see. justify the and, choices that have been made. And I found it very helpful there to have elders. Mm. We're scrutinizing each other's behavior and mm-hmm. each other's speech. And, and there was one meeting where one of my elders actually called me late at night. He was a young guy, former student, knew he was terrified. He called me late at night, uh, and he'd obviously he needed to do this before he went to bed, but he left it to the very last minute. And essentially said to me in the next phase of the discipline case, I think you need to absent yourself because you might sin through anger. Mm-hmm. And it was hard for him to say that. And I was pretty annoyed when he said that to me initially. <laughs> but as I calmed down on the phone, I thought, you know, he's right. Mm-hmm. That I have other elders, and I trust them to do the right thing. There are points when, particularly when you're the guy in the crosshairs in a discipline case, you can get very personally yeah. involved. In terms of what you tell the congregation, uh, I would say you need to tell them something. Yes. Because just to excommunicate somebody without reason looks weird. An excommunication in the OPC, I guess in the PCA as well, has to be done publicly. Right. There are other degrees of discipline that one can mm-hmm. do without making it public. Mm-hmm. Excommunication has to be done publicly. We took the the decision in this case that... We would not give a lot of detail in the announcement, but we would say that anybody disturbed by the judgment should talk to the elders, and we'd agreed as elders that we would share a considerable amount one-on-one with people who are genuinely disturbed. But obviously, there's a certain need-to-know basis. The congregation need to know that you've acted appropriately, you've followed the procedure, and you've not overreacted to a situation. But you also don't want to tempt them to gossip, Right. Mm-hmm. Throw out more information, and and you, when you discipline one person, there are always other people who are affected by it. There's always a wife yeah. mm-hmm. or a child right. or something like that. But if you, don't, you don't give don't enough information, them. then people are asking questions sure, and, and gossip. Sure. Can well, that's why we said approach the elders individually. If you're right. seriously mm-hmm. concerned, approach the elders, and we would share. Yeah. Them. Yeah. The, the way the way we've handled it is similar. Um, I mean, we we as we look at Matthew 18 and and First Corinthians 5, you know, Paul clearly. Um, identifies specifically the sin that is going on, even though it is of a rather embarrassing nature. Mm-hmm. Now, part of that had to do with the fact that the sin was out there. It was very public. Mm-hmm. So th- so Paul was not revealing hidden or secret information there. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even name the person, so everybody would know who Everybody he was. knows, yeah, yeah. And so what we've chosen to do is, is we gave enough information to say, here's the category, basically, of sin. It's this kind of a mm-hmm. sin. Um, but but didn't go into any further details than that. And and the category of sin was such that the peop, 
that the people didn't need more information. It, it was like, okay. Uh, it was such an obvious issue where 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 excommunication needed to happen. So in that case, that that was pretty clear. Um, it is really hard to do that, but it's it's necessary at times. Uh, Paul calls for it for for all the reasons that that we've already said. You know, one one interesting question that comes up a lot pastorally, though, um, and I've I've had it in a situation in the church I serve is. We're, I'm in a community of about 50,000. Um, it's a college town, university town, but you routinely see people that you know. Um, every day you'll see somebody you know. And so the question has come, when, 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 you, when we excommunicate someone, I'm going to bump into them. Yeah, how, how do I interact with that person? Yeah, how's the congregation to Do I speak to them? Do I have a cup of coffee you know they invited me over to their house for something what am i supposed mm-hmm. to do yeah and that's a tough one because i we we were talking before the program and i think paul make does make a distinction between first corinthians 5 yeah, yeah. between unbelievers and those yeah. who were part of the visible church and mm-hmm. have been excommunicated that you know when you're excommunicated you're handing somebody over to satan right well that's not typically how we Think of our non-Christian neighbors. Right. We're not handing them over to Satan, yeah. generally speaking. Mm-hmm. So that is a tough. Mm-hmm. That is a tough question. Obviously, they need to be objects of evangelism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I also think they need to be called upon to repent. Sure. Right. And do we look at them like a backslidden Christian? I guess not. Nope. If we're no. to give nope. them over to Satan. But yeah. Church order in the OPC is very clear. We're to treat them as an unbeliever. Okay. But I actually think you, you treat them not simply as an unbeliever, but as a believer who's now an unbeliever. An apostate, right. basically. An apostate. And yeah. in Hebrews, there's such strong language yeah. against yes, there is. that. Yeah. And Warnings so, are very severe. And so that's the difficult thing. And again, because well, aren't we still supposed to love this person? You know, comes comes the replies. And you know, you, you have to take people to 1 Corinthians 5. You have to also teach them the broader context with which 1 Corinthians 5 is trying to protect, which is the, the peace and the purity of the church, mm-hmm. the, the, um, the honor of Christ. These things are paramount, and this is why this is so serious. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's I, – I mean, what I challenge people to do is, no, no you don't go and share a meal with them. Um, uh, you, you don't go to a party at their home. You don't invite them to your house for a party. If you see them, I mean, I, I, I would say what I've told people is don't shun them. You're still uh, hoping for restoration. I mean. You're still praying and hoping restoration. So I, I think that that's different from shunning. And here's where the difficulty I, I come in with, because, Carl, you're absolutely right. This is different. This, is, this isn't the same uh, thing as, as dealing with an unbeliever, whereas you reach out to them, treat them as an object of evangelism, um, uh, you know, we've we've turned them over to Satan. That's really strong, Such strong language. Uh, language. You, you treat them as an apostate because all the evidence is that they're an apostate, um, whose whose association with the church is damaging the church and the reputation of Christ. And yet, we also know that Paul, with this particular gentleman in in the church in Corinth, the the point is that they're hoping eventually for his return, for his repentance and return. And so. I, I have a hard time getting a whole lot more specific than, well, don't treat them like everything's okay. So, so you don't just go out and have a drink with them. You don't just go out and treat them to a cup of coffee because that's going to miscommunicate to them. And at the same time, we're not shunning. I don't think we're shunning. Carl, do you think that, there's, that this might be something parallel to shunning? 
it's uh, you know it could look different in different circumstances right. but i think the key the key thing is in your dealings with them you have to impress upon them the seriousness of the situation in which they place themselves yeah. okay so let, let's do this so let, let's say that um i've been excommunicated i'm a member of your church uh, you've had to excommunicate me for public sin um and then um you know amy you and your husband are out one evening and we bump into each other um, and start talking. Pretend what like would, I don't see you. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. What would you tell what Carl? What would you tell Amy if she, if she and her family were members of the church also that that their conversation with me is supposed to look like if we see each other? Well, thanks for dropping that one. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, it kind of depends right. on. I would imagine if Amy saw you in a restaurant, she and Matt would probably. Leave pretty quickly anyway to, to avoid catching your eye, even if you weren't excommunicated. Tom always takes his shirt off at the table. Let's leave. <laughs> Who is that guy on the wife beater? Yes, yeah. uh, yeah. uh, no, I, I, that's 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 a hard one. Yeah, that's a hard one to answer. But I think you know, Paul says you need to hand these people over to Satan, yeah. treat them like unbelievers. It cannot be a friendly chat. Right. Maybe it could be a brief and civil exchange mm-hmm. of words, but if you're going to get into to anything more intimate than a hello, how are you how are you doing? How are the kids? The issue of excommunication right. is going to have to come up. Right. The issue of excommunication has mm-hmm. got to come up. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, hey, listen, you know, Todd, this is awkward. I mean, we all know what's happened, but listen. Mm-hmm. Um we, we just you. want you to keep praying hearing what, what has been called forth. You've been called upon to repent. Yeah. We're praying that you're going to do that. Please, 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 you know, repent. And, and that, that's awkward. Yeah. It is awkward. But that's, that's, the, ki- that's the kind of inter- – that's what Discipline the interaction needs painful. to look like. Yeah. Discipline right. is painful, and, yeah. but it's for the purpose of, of fruit. Yeah. Hopefully, so. and, and that's where and that's where I think Carl, your your uh, if, if the the admonition of of this is about the honor of Christ. As the lay people in our church, they've got to remember that this isn't. Yeah. This is about Christ being honored, right. and so therefore, right. this awkward mm-hmm. yeah. moment it, it, it needs to yeah. be awkward. Yeah, because I'm 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 a part of of. Of upholding the honor of Christ. Well, and this kind of all insinuates the importance of church membership too, doesn't yeah. it? Because if we if the church doesn't hold that as an important right. um, thing, then um, Big we're deal not if really. You kick me out. Yeah. yeah, I'll just go down the road to the other one. Right, yeah. and and this is also connected then to the Lord's Supper. I would say mm-hmm. membership, yeah. Lord's Supper, excommunication. Got to have a robust doctrine yeah. of of the Lord's Supper. Yeah, if you don't, if the Lord's Supper is a nothing in your church if it's just a memorial or it's just what you do if you haven't got to get home and uh, prepare the sunday lunch then you have no sanction in terms of church discipline because church discipline excommunication looks like being cut off from the lord's supper being cut off from the people of god at that point and if if the lord's supper is not being taught and promoted as an important and a rich part of christian life in your church then that doesn't look like a very serious Mm -hmm. sanction that doesn't look like a very serious sanction at all if it's the covenant meal yeah, where Jesus meets with His people and nourishes yeah. them. Yeah, right. Then it's a means of grace. Yeah, yeah. yeah then I'm okay. Yeah, I mean, I would encourage excommunicated people to still come to church. Yes, because I think they need to sit under the only means of grace they right. have left to them, and that's the, the preaching. preaching of the word. And I also think that sitting and having the elements pass you by at the Lord's Supper mm. is a powerful and dramatic yeah. uh, statement of how you've cut yourself off from the people of God.
Now, if the person is turning up and is causing trouble, right, right. he's dissing the elders or, or right. doing that kind of malarkey, yeah. well, you're going to have to, sure. at that point, you have to say, I'm sorry. Yeah. You, can't even, you can't even sit under the word at this even point. Show the tragedy up your, right. is you have really cut yourself off. Yeah. But otherwise, I would want the person to be there under the yeah. preaching of the word. Sadly, my experience in this situation has been that people coming under discipline seem to get harder under the word right. than softer. Yeah. I've never uh, seen anyone come back to sit under the word. After I, I, being I, I got to tell you that, praise God, I mean, one situation um, where there was church discipline in my church, uh, the, the, it happened before I came to be their pastor. This person came back some months ago in a really gloriously beautiful act of humble repentance like I've never seen before. That's and one of the high moments of my entire pastoral ministry which I've been doing this for over 20 years, one of the high points was watching this person take their membership vows again mm-hmm. um, and being formally, you know, she didn't just ooze back in. She, it was this formal, beautiful process. And as she took those membership vows again, it was extraordinary. Yeah. And, and so, uh, such a wonderful moment of, of, of grace for the whole congregation. Um, but, but that's the only time I've seen it happen. You know, you'd love to see it more, but that's the only time. Well, I think I can hear the puppet master calling <laughs> us into his office. So I'm, I'm not going to. I think we need to adopt Todd the the classic strategy here relative to to the discipline that's coming our way. And I think we should simply blame Amy. Absolutely, me. Uh, I think <laughs> what we, I do? we need we need a scapegoat at this point. Yes, and Amy. This is it. You know, we don't want to be prejudiced against her because she's a woman. So I think we'll give her an important role at this point. <laughs> Amy, you can take the rap for us. Absolutely, I agree. Uh, otherwise, if we're not all fired by the puppet under master, under the bus, what gentleman you are. <laughs> If we don't all get fired by the puppet master in the next five minutes, we'll be with you next week. In the meantime, visit our website, uh, mortificationofspin.org. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen that exists to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. If you want to go more in-depth on today's topic, head over to mortificationofspin.org and download Mark Dever's talk entitled Church Discipline vs. Evangelism from the 2003 Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. And make sure to catch next week's episode. Today we're actually going to be discussing the problem of sexual immorality and adultery among Christians and perhaps particularly among members of the ministry, among members of the clergy. Just in the last few weeks we've, we've had an unusual spike in some of the attention uh, regarding the sin of adultery. This is a problem for women too. I know men are known to be more visual and fall easier that way, but... There are plenty of women out there having affairs. Don't forget to read more from Carl, Amy, and Todd on their blogs at mortificationofspin.org.
The Inquisition. What a show. Do you, you all ever watch Mel Brooks' uh, History of the World Part 1? <laughs> the Inquisition. Here we go. <laughs> Sounds like you got our I tune know, I, I know you're yeah. wishing that we'd go away. I hope you recorded this. Well, but the Inquisition's here and it's here to stay. <laughs>